adoption of the standards, the focus on supporting students who are behind grade level is more critical than ever. Yet even with a clear roadmap of learning from grade to grade, students are still struggling and research shows that there are huge glaring inequities in the education system. On February 13, 2017, Kate Gerson, managing partner at Unbound Ed, gave a keynote presentation to over 800 educators in Orlando, Florida at the Standards Institute. The Institute is a twice-yearly training with learning pathways in English language arts, mathematics, and leadership. Her keynote was focused on showing educators that there is a clear path to fighting the status quo through research that will challenge us to change mindsets and practices in order to support all students. The name of our organization is Unbound Ed. We started about a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half ago. We are largely made up of former teachers and principals, former educators, folks who have spent their careers thinking deeply about what it takes to support the learning of all children, regardless of who they are, where they come from, and what challenges they face. So that's who we are. You'll be meeting us throughout the week. We'll be around. The conversation we want to have this morning and all week is about high standards. So just to kind of set the stage, this is something we're all clearly aware of, but high standards set grade level expectations for all children. So that's the baseline. One of the things we face in our work is that so few of the children we serve, particularly in high poverty contexts, come to us ready for the grade in which they find themselves. So that's the problem we face. That's the central issue we confront in our work, in our learning. We're going to look at data that a lot of us know, a lot of this data. I'm just going to like kind of run through a little bit of it just to create context to make sure we all have a common understanding of the level, like a level setting of where we are, where we're starting. So if the standards articulate grade level readiness, I am ready to go on to the next grade. And at the end of 12, I am ready to go on to a career that sustains myself, my family, to meaningful work. Right, so if, if that's the goal, 31% of the kids in our country are now there. We have a ton of work left to do. If you break those numbers down by subgroups, the numbers are even more startling and, in fact, unconscionable. 12% of black students in Baltimore are proficient, 22% of Hispanic students in Providence are proficient, and 15% of economically disadvantaged students in DC met that, met that proficiency level. You can, look at, you can break down numbers in any city in any context, and it, it's always, always this stark. I wanted to sort of start the conversation this morning by making sure that we are always attending to the role that race is playing in our own learning and in our own impactfulness. So I wanted to pull this statistic up first as we start talking about achievement rates and notice that when you isolate what students can do, what their environments are, what their context is, when you only look at race, particularly between black students and white students, the longer we have in school, the more of a gap there is in what they are able to do. So I have an uncle who, like, whenever we talk about this, which is a lot, he likes to say, well, it's really about poverty. It's, a lot, it's about more than poverty, right? So we want to make sure that we're paying attention to that simple truth. If we start looking at grade level performance, one in four black and Hispanic students who are not reading proficiently in third grade will not graduate from high school on time. This number matters deeply because if students cannot read well in third grade, 
It's the, the same students who can't read their well, well in third grade or the students who cannot read well in ninth grade. The students who cannot read well in ninth grade are the students who end up falling off, dropping out, not graduating on time or at all. So if we look at third grade as this moment, right, and the standards name for us how you get ready to be able to read to learn in third, right, before third it's learning to read. But if you don't arrive in third ready to read to learn, ready to consume information from text, get knowledge from text and apply it to fourth grade, get the knowledge you need from the text in fourth grade and apply it to fifth, if you don't start down that track, things start to fall apart very quickly and those numbers stay real consistent. Another way to look at this is students living in poverty and not reading proficiently in third grade are 13 times more likely to not graduate on time. This third grade business is a big deal, and it's not just a big deal for K3 teachers because all of us, as a secondary teacher, all of us receive students then for the duration who are then acquiring compounded skill deficits, showing up less and less and less ready for the grade they enter. When students repeat grades, therefore, not all schools make this decision, but when they do, when students repeat grades, seven, when they don't repeat grades, 7% of them end up dropping out. If you jump to two grades that they've repeated or been held back, 57% uh, of them drop out. If they repeat three grades, 100% of them drop out. And by the way, if you want all the citations and studies and everything that we're using for this data this morning, it is all um, noted in the deck, but also um, easily findable on our site. I want to jump to incarceration because one of the most severe consequences of not doing well in school is the, is the correlation between that outcome and the likelihood of incarceration. So there's many other systems in play when it comes to incarceration or even mass incarceration, and that, and that is not our sphere of influence. Our sphere of influence is what happens in the classroom and what happens in terms of literacy achievement, and I want to talk about that. In 2000, this is one way of looking at incarceration numbers, a snapshot from 2009, 68% of young black men under the age of 35 who dropped out of high school were incarcerated at some point. A different way of looking at these numbers, in 2010, a third of all black male high school dropouts between the ages of 20 and 39 were imprisoned. 60% of black and Latino prison inmates are functionally illiterate. So illiteracy is playing a key role in these outcomes. Not the only role, I'm not confused, but it's a key role. Okay, so what's the opposite end of this spectrum? Okay, so we got them into college, right? So we get very excited when we walk our students across the stage and we say we got them into college. We got 70% of our kids into college, 90% of our kids into college. What happens there? Well, only 29% of first-year college students who take one to two remedial courses graduate within eight years. So we know that if they walk across our stage not being on par with high standards for 12th grade, they are going to enter college needing remedial support. So if we think about the students they serve, we serve, and we think about their readiness in third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and we translate that, that to what they are actually able to do, what they know and are able to do by 12th, and there, we, we know how many of them, it's actually 60% of students who walk into college period or take in remedial courses, if they take one or two, the likelihood of their success goes down dramatically. Now let's look at careers. 73% of young adults with a, uh, with a bachelor's degree have full-time work. 50% of young adults who did not complete high school have full-time work. Okay, so what if they have work? Young adults with a bachelor's degree earn almost twice as much as young adults who, not, who do not complete high school. 
what's going on? We're all trying so hard. We all believe in our kids. And that's one of the foundations of the conversation I want to have with you today, is that all of us love them. All of us have kids in front of us or in the sphere of influence that we serve who we are deeply attached to, and even if we don't know them, serve constantly, think about constantly, stay up at night worrying about, right? So this, this conversation is not at all about devotion. This conversation is not at all about effort, actually, either. It really is about what is going on here? Like, what are the obstacles that we're facing that we are having such a hard time moving this needle? Here's what we believe the three problems are. One, sort of the obvious, students are coming to us with compounded deficits. Two, we, the adults, the grown-ups, are still learning how to do this. We don't yet know exactly how to do this. We are still learning. And by we, I mean me. I mean you. I mean the adults that you work with. I mean the adults that you coach or teach or support or collaborate with. I mean all of us. This is a conversation that we all must start to have constantly, and this is the environment we're trying to build here at Standards Institute. We can only pull that off if you're in with us, right? If you are in as a learner. We are in as learners. But the third thing I want to talk about, in addition to our learning, is that our expectations are in play. What we believe about what's possible is in play. And when I say that, I mean it for myself. I mean it for all of the adults that I work with and care so deeply about and respect so deeply, and I mean it for all of you. It's a thing we've got to confront if we're going to really push through the wall, the barrier that we are now facing. So this is one of my favorite quotes, and I very, I'm going to read from slides three times today, verbatim, I mean, and this is one of them, just because it's worth saying the words carefully and slowly out loud. This is the guy who wrote the IQ test. There's two of them. This is one of them. We're going to jump into a little history of belief and expectations here. This is the guy who, I'm just going to say it again, wrote the IQ test. You remember the IQ test. You took it last summer on Facebook. <laughs> but it's also a thing that informs IEPs. It's also a thing that informs you know, conversations we have under our breath over dinner about a relative, right? Like these are, this is information that we use to understand another person's potential. Here is what Alfred Binet, one of the two authors, said. A few modern philosophers assert that an individual's intelligence is a fixed quantity, a quantity which cannot be increased. We must protect and react against this brutal pessimism with practice, training, and above all, method, we manage to increase our attention, our memory, our judgment, and literally become more intelligent than we were before. The IQ test was built to measure the current knowledge and skill of World War I soldiers. Not the intelligence, the current knowledge and skill. And here we are using it in this crazy way. So if we have grown up in Western culture, we have grown up with this idea of a fixed mindset. If intelligence is something you're born with, it's fixed, um, it's measurable, it's finite. You either got it or you don't. The growth mindset is a very different thing. Intelligence is movable, intelligence is attainable, and it grows. The recipe for growing it is effective effort, not just effort, effective effort, strategic support, and confidence or belief of those around you and, and in yourself. 
So growth mindset is this like learning orientation that we can come with. We can also come with a performance orientation. You all know people who walk into meetings knowing absolutely everything already, right? Like you can tell them absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't finish my sentence yet, but you're agreeing with me already, right? Like that's performance orientation, that's fixed mindset. And often professionally, that's the guy who's most afraid of what he doesn't know, right? And that's why he's showing up with that attitude. Growth mindset is the person in the meeting who's like, um, you are using an acronym I do not know. Could we back up? And it's a risk, right? It's a risk to ask stupid questions. It's a risk to say, I don't get this yet. It's a risk for every single one of you in any of these sessions this week to say, I have no idea how to do this. I've been teaching math a completely different way and I don't know what you're saying. In fact, I don't even really know how those numbers work, the thing you just did on the whiteboard. Right? And if you are hearing a conversation across the room that's referring to research or computation, something that's happening in the room, if you orient to it like, I'm confused, I don't get it yet, can we back up? That is learning orientation, that's the growth mindset. And if we can hold it as adults, it's, it's mission critical that we hold it for our kids. So we've known this. Jeff Howard has helped us think about, and that, that work, by the way, the fixed mindset, growth mindset stuff is Carol Dweck. Jeff Howard is a researcher um, out of Harvard. He has an organization called the Efficacy Institute. He's one of our mentors. And he has taken Dweck's work and really helped us apply it to education. One of the things he says is, we organize people into three categories. Very smart, kind of smart, and kind of dumb. So we organize our family members this way. We organize our neighbors this way. If we're part of a religious institution, we organize members of that institution this way. We organize politicians this way. We organize celebrities this way. We organize pets this way. We organize coworkers this way. We organize bosses this way. And if we're being honest, and this is the most painful part of the conversation, we organize students this way. No matter what our role is in this work, if we pay attention, we catch ourselves looking at students through this lens. And if this is not an accusation, this is, not, this is a, this sort of a statement about how bias lives in us. And it's something that lives in me, it's something that if I don't track constantly, I will move through that bias unconsciously. And so one of the conversations we are looking to have and really excited to have all week is one in which all of us here, all the grown-ups here, are able to face the discomfort of saying, wait, is bias a part of the reaction that I'm having right now? Do I really think this kid is kind of dumb or even just only kind of smart? Right? In fact, by the way, where do you put yourself in that trifecta? Like, does everybody here just, you got it? You're very smart? I'm guessing no. I'm guessing that's not how you orient to yourself in this hierarchy. I mean, I'm sure some of you do, but I'm sure not all of you do. So this, this trifecta is not real, right? That is, that's a trifecta that's built out of the fixed mindset. We cannot live there anymore if we are going to pull this off. So we want to talk today about implicit bias. Another way of saying implicit bias is unconscious bias, which is the way I'll refer to it. Um, but you can, the, the more um, sort of 
in vogue term is implicit bias, but I want to just talk about it. And I put a definition up. This is another one of the slides I want to read out loud because it's worth doing. One of the things that happens if you bring up bias and if you bring up race is an is a organic defensiveness that comes up in all of us of like, because I'm not behaving in the way that some of our fellow citizens are at this time, I am not a racist, I, am not, I do not hold bias. I believe in the value and equity of all people. So that is a conscious statement, right? That is, a, that is who I want to be. I want to be someone who never organizes or orients to another person with bias. But the truth of the matter is that it's human and it lives in all sectors, all professional sectors, and it lives in ours. And if I don't stare my bias in the face, objectively and bravely, constantly, I'm not going to be able to undo it, and I'm not going to be able to unpack the decisions and the behaviors that I exhibit that are informed by that bias. So here's a definition. Implicit bias refers to the automatic and unconscious stereotypes that drive people to behave and make decisions in certain ways. It is the mind's way of making uncontrolled and automatic associations between two concepts very quickly. So from that, I'm jumping into this number. 49% of the students in this country are, are not white. 18% of the teachers in this country are not white. Those numbers don't match. Right, so bias comes into play quickly and more commonly when we are orienting to another, an other. It's, it's in play for all of us for a variety of reasons, but it is also worth saying, and I say this as a white woman who has, for all of my career, served schools and contexts in which a, a majority of the students we're working with are students of color, right? So I say that knowing what I say and knowing that it's disruptive and that it's like, it's something that like, eh, I'd rather not talk about this. I talked to my mom about, my mother who's a career teacher and a veteran teacher about the conversation I wanted to have today and she was like, why are you bringing that up? <laughs> like, they just want to talk about standards. <laughs> um, and the reason is because if we don't talk about it, we, the standards conversation kind of hits a wall, right? And it's not because any of us are bad people and it's not because any of us are motivated by, by a, a deeply held supremacy, conscious supremacy, but it is because we orient to other people who come from a different place, whether that place is informed by religion or race or context, like the kid has a troubled life, right? Like whatever the environment is, but it's often race, not always. There's a lot going on and we can orient to that other in a way that is informed by bias and if we don't pay attention to it, we're in trouble. This exists everywhere. I'm just gonna walk through a couple of sectors that are not ours to, to sort of demonstrate the fact that I'm not just bringing this up as like, we educators have a problem. Humans have this phenomenon, right? Humans do this thing. So here's a study from the legal sector. A research memo from a hypothetical third year litigation associate was sent to 60 partners from 22 different law firms. In one, he was identified as Caucasian, and the other, he was identified as African American. Same memo, same memo. The partners responded to this memo with the Caucasian, the Caucasian memo by saying, generally good writer, but needs to work on blah, 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 has potential, good analytical skills, the African-American writer, quote, needs lots of work, can't believe he went to NYU, average at best. 
right? So 60 partners made this designation from 22 law firms. It wasn't just like one, one racist law firm, right? Like, like this is going on quietly inside of all of us. The sharing economy exhibits bias. 20 Airbnb accounts inquired about the availability of roughly 6,400 listings on Airbnb across five cities. Guests with African, quote, African-American names, this is a conversation we could have all day, but I'm just going to do this for efficiency. Guests with African-American names were 16% less likely to be accepted compared to guests, meaning get a, get a place, compared to guests with, quote, white names. The health and human services sector has bias. Even with the same credentials of black researchers' chances of winning a National Institute of Health grant is 10% points lower than a white researcher's chances. So does it show up in our sector? Yes. Here are some of the ways bias shows up in our sector. Disproportionality in discipline, disproportionality in special ed designation, disproportionality in lower performing tracks, teacher mindsets, beliefs, behaviors. The orientation a teacher can have to a student is off, can, can often, will often be informed by bias, dominant discourse regarding, you, and you've heard these conversations, you've had these conversations, it is so hard to check yourself on these conversations. They're bright, they're smart, they're slow. This language is sort of in the water around us. So here's a couple of studies where this really did show up for us in our sector. These are recent studies. Um, 132 preschool educators watched a video of preschoolers and were asked to, to name who would need the most attention. 42% said the black boy, 13% said the white girl. The viewers were of a variety of backgrounds. No challenging behaviors were actually observed in the video. And I have to say, that one of the ways this haunts me, one of the ways this factor haunts me, is that it is very rare to enter a classroom that has a carpet and not see one or two African-American boys or even dark-skinned boys sitting on the edge of that carpet. And that is not because anyone in that room is consciously racist. That is not because anyone in that room made that decision because that boy is black on purpose. But the phenomenon is there, right? So we are constantly making these micro-decisions. And I made, these, I made these choices all the time. Uh, without meaning to, I participated in this, what ends up being, the, the aggregate ends up being a systemic problem, right? So we just have to constantly examine it. What I'm trying to do is just open a conversation, not to accuse any of us or even like lay myself open for judgment, but to say, I mean, judge me, but, but to say, if we don't start talking about it, if we don't start looking at it and saying which part of this is because this kid needs time alone to think to work and which part of this is a reflex, a bias that is somewhat somewhere informed by what he looks like, what his family is about, where they live, etc. There's disproportionality and discipline. Back black boys and girls have a higher suspension rate. We've all talked a lot about the school to prison pipeline that starts with discipline in school. This is a study it's worth me just shutting up and letting you read it. This is a study uh, from 2015 called Who Believes in Me? Um, where where a, a group of educators was uh, examined around their bias. I'm just gonna give you a few minutes to look at the results of this study. There are four bullets. 
So I showed this recently, um, and a, a, young, a young man, a young white man who's a colleague of mine uh, and who's deeply devoted to the work in which we find ourselves said that when he listens to me talk about this, this conversation and when he looks at this slide in particular, his response is, should I just quit? Like, should I not be here? Should I not be, like, are you saying that like it's not working and that we should go away? Um, and it's actually quite the opposite, right? Because if you're devoted and if this, is the, if this is your calling, if this is the work that you know you wanna do and this is the thing that's most meaningful for your life, hell no, we need you. But, and we have a lot of learning to do, right? And so we have to lean into what it is we don't know about how to do our jobs so that we can overcome this. We have to come up with a vocabulary to talk amongst ourselves as adults all of whom want this so badly and work so hard for it, we have to just say, okay, this is a factor. This is a thing we have to constantly name, discuss, unpack, and be uncomfortable in. And if we're doing that, it starts to create space for, okay, well then, if this is true, like part of the solution is, we also have to change our practice. Right, because if I, I mean, I had, many of us had the attitude, and there's one boy who haunts me and will for the rest of my life, because I oriented to this kid like, man, I don't know what you're doing here. Like, I am, I am covering this. I executed this lesson on the Song of Solomon so beautifully, and I don't know what your problem is. Uh, right, like, that we, we all have had those days where we're like, I killed it today, and you didn't get it, and you're kind of acting like a turkey and like, I don't know what to do with you, right? Where you start to like, you start to give up on a kid. Even if you don't, even if you showed up tomorrow. But there's a conversation that haunts me because I had that conversation with a young man, his name was Frank. I had that conversation with him where I was like, dude, he didn't come back to school. And I lit, like, I lit, I think about Frank every single day. Because I know that what happened is I hit a wall that was like a legitimately emotional wall that was informed by like effort and trying. But it was also that I looked at him like, dude, what, what the hell am I supposed to do with you? And the answer is, is I had a heck of a way to go and what I needed to learn. Right, so this paradigm, this very smart, kind of smart, kind of dumb paradigm gets broken apart, gets broken into pieces if we start to examine the opportunity that we're providing rather than who they are, right? So if the, if the blame, if the responsibility is on us, that means that we have to keep trying other things, right? Because like I had done my best, like what did he not understand about how beautifully I had read that chapter? But or like in the questions I had asked and the like, intense conversation I had facilitated. Like, what is the problem here? But there was so much more that I needed to do to ensure that this kid could access the stinking text and make meaning for himself and grow up to be a person who could conduct analysis, participate in discourse, and be a citizen. So I'm like, I don't want to talk about the achievement gap anymore. I want to talk about the opportunity gap, and I want to talk about what we provide, there's a gap in what we provide, right, and what we offer them. And the irony is that there's a ton of research that tells us how. 
There's so much research that says, hey, if you want to move them from where they are to this other place, you're going to have to give up things you're attached to. You're going to have to give up ways of teaching and ways of being that you are comfortable in. But there is a path. It's different. You don't know how to do it, so you're not going to feel great about it all the time because you're used to knowing what you're doing. And if you try this, you're going to have to live in a learning orientation. But there's a path. We haven't seen results. We've been trying, right? So we've been, we've been doing this. We've got all the technical shifts down. We've got, there's a text out in every ELA classroom. There's an, an ELA teacher who hasn't said the word text five times so far today. She says evidence all the time. <laughs> Kids know everything they need to know about annotation, right? And in math, we have focused the lesson. We are asking students to articulate their mathematical reasoning. And these changes did not come for free. These changes came at a cost. We've worked hard on this. But there is another phase to this work. I submit that we are hitting these plateaus. We are hitting this wall where we cannot move past these tiny bumps that we've started to make because we have not yet examined our own beliefs, examined what we truly think is possible for every kid in front of us. And it's not like, oh, that kid can never make it. None of us would say that. Maybe, no, none of us would say that. But what we might say is, I can't move that kid on my watch, right, in my short watch. Like, he got here this way. There's no way I can get where he would need to be to get ready for next year or a hell of a lot closer, what I submit is that there's a way to do this. And what's gonna, what it's going to require is confronting the distance between our belief and what we know. We in education tend to have very strong beliefs, and those beliefs can overwhelm our knowledge or even our willingness to gain knowledge. I believe in what I've been doing. I believe this is the right way. You can come in here with your research and start unpacking that for me, but like I know my kids. And the truth is that our way has worked for some kids. Those are the kids we want to remember. Like, I know it worked for some, not for Frank, but it was working for like three kids in the class, and I know their names and remember their faces. I know where they are now. We're friends on Facebook. But it wasn't working for Frank and a lot of other kids like Frank in my room, and that hurts me now. So. What, did I, what, what could I have known that I didn't enact, right? What were those biases stopping me from just looking at, just facing? And there's three very simple pieces of research that I want to talk to you about. The first is, it's a simple truth that aligned materials make a classroom better. In fact, using unaligned materials has a, a more negative impact than having an effective teacher. So the effect size of good material, mean aligned meaning like moderately aligned with the standards, not even as good as engaged. Moderately aligned with the standards is as impactful as having an effective teacher. And if you go in the other direction, it's actually, it actually takes away the impact of an effective teacher. And yet, you can't read this graph, it's too tiny. But what it says is, we all still do what we want. We all still make our own stuff. We are all still organized around our dining room table every Sunday night, building what's going to happen for next week, putting the responsibility in ourselves, for piecing curriculum together day after day. And it is so hard to do that and have a big picture coherence 
of alignment to standards. So what we submit to you is if you start that creativity, if you hold on to that sense of ownership for your classroom, if you defend the fact that you know who your kids are more than a stranger does, but you orient to the roadmap of aligned materials, the impact and the um, movement that you will see is, is significantly greater. One of the details of that is that if we write our own, the tasks are often just simply not aligned. We're not at, we don't yet know how to, this is what I mean when I say we're still learning, we don't yet know how to create the right tasks, ask the right questions. In math, it's, it's a very similar problem. Every single classroom we walk into right now, the, the major work of the grade tends to be on the table. We've got more focused work happening, but we are very consistently still in procedure. I submit to you that the major reason we are still in procedure is that we still struggle with the math itself. If you're a principal and you're supervising a math classroom, it is very possible that you yourself could not stand up and teach the conceptual version of this lesson. But it is also possible that as a teacher, even though you've been teaching this concept for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you still don't know how to, and you could do it and you could explain it, but you don't know how to teach it in a conceptual way. So the fallback, and I'm not accusing you, I'm saying it's possible. The fallback is to leave the conceptual work out of the lesson. The fallback is to lean onto the shortcuts and take that conceptual time out of lessons. One of ours, and this is by the way, like don't, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and leaving procedure far behind, but there is an epidemic in all of us that like I know exactly why to carry the one. I do not know exactly how to make sure students understand place value and the way it functions. First, right? That's the work, that's the work in math. In ELA, it is that they have to be reading complex texts and they have to be acquiring knowledge. The, the epidemic in ELA is that we consistently tell students what's in the text, right? So like, that, I mean, me performing Song of Solomon is one example, but I, it's, it's still a lot of what we do because the, the novel is so good and if they, don't, if they can't read it themselves, I wanna make sure they know the story, but that's not enough. And if we don't go to that extreme route, we still ask them questions that say, why did Johnny throw the ball through the window? And then the student looks at the sentence and he's like, clearly Johnny threw the ball through the window and it says the word angry, so here's my analysis of this sentence, the ball went through the window because Johnny was angry, right? That's not asking students for analysis. And we do that all the time in little ways. We lean in and do the work for them and it's like, it's an act of devotion, it's an act of love to support students and protect them from that productive struggle, but it is blocking the explosive development that happens when you interact with a text, when you figure out what a text means. And we are not saying send them off into the corner to suffer with that text. We are saying provide scaffolding that does not tell them the answers. This is an important quote and one of the last ones I'll read. Uh, one of the last slides we've got, or I've got this morning. It's really critically important to express this when we think about complexity and we think about what we put in front of students and ask them to make meaning of. This is Timothy Shanahan, one of our uh, keynote speakers and one of our mentors. 
I have sought studies that would support the original contention that we could facilitate student learning by placing kids in the right levels of text. Of course, guided reading, this is where they throw fruit, guided reading and leveled books are so widely used it would make sense that there would be lots of evidence as to their efficacy, except that there is not. There is no evidence that doing all this work, sitting down, toiling over books that students can almost read by themselves, has an impact. There is no evidence that it has an impact, and yet we do it. We are very clear that the research tells us it's got to be grade level complexity, support it if they can't read it independently, and they've got to acquire knowledge through that text. And we're just not organizing our classrooms this way, and we're going to talk a lot about how to do that this week. That's just some more research about that. So our task this week is for us to get smarter, constantly together to push each other around our biases, around what it is that we do not yet know about our own practice, disrupt the status quo, close the opportunity gap, get smarter about the, what the research says is right for kids, and just skill up, knowledge up and skill up for ourselves. You've made a decision to leave your classrooms at a critical time of the year, and we want to honor and respect that by making sure that the time that you have here is meaningful and that you're able to get smarter about what it is this research says. One last note before I bring the good secretary up. This is actually a slide that he obsessed over, so it's apropos. This is a, um, a slide that we made um, in 2014 as a result of uh, where, where students in New York State were landing against this high poverty, high achievement matrix. I still use this slide every time I talk because it is a slide that says, you know what, everything else I just said is really hard. And there are so many days where we're like, there's too many obstacles. There's too much about this that makes it hard to do. But this slide is a plot graph. Every circle on this slide graph represents a school in New York State. And when we measured students against high standards in New York State, Yes, the trend is a particular one that we're used to seeing, but there are a ton of schools in the quadrant that says they are high achieving and they are high poverty. The point of this is it is being done.